You're listening to the Tefl Commute Podcast, Episode 2, Stationary. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Tefl Commute, a podcast for language teachers which isn't about language teaching, although this topic will inevitably come up. My name's Lindsay Clanfield. That suddenly sounds like a very convoluted intro, uh, Lindsay. Hi, my name's Sean Wilden, and welcome back. And uh, what are we talking about today, Lindsay? Well, today I thought we'd talk about a, a topic that is uh, not often talked about, but I think is near and dear to many teachers' hearts, and that's the topic of stationary. And stationary meaning the not moving, or oh, you're 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 begging for a word nerd thing happening here. No, I mean stationary as in pens, paper, uh, paper clips. Um, hole punchers, notebooks, um, all of that kind of stuff that uh, that you have. Um, that I think people develop like a love for it when they're at school, and teachers, of course, kind of end up going to school for their whole lives. So you you always have a pencil case. You know, I in fact recently discovered Sean um, when I went back to my parents' house in Toronto. I found my old pencil case, um, and I've now brought it back. And I, uh, it's a bit small, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to reusing. Can you fit your current stationery, your like your iPad and well, your? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, what does iPad and all that count as stationery? I don't know. I mean, obviously there are like stationery type apps that you can have, but I, I, it fits a good amount of pens and a little tiny, um, uh, like um, uh, stapler and stuff like that. It's, but um, it's, it's interesting because when I'm obviously getting ready for this uh, conversation, I actually downloaded a book on my Kindle called Adventures in Stationery, A Journey Through Your Pencil Case. And this guy, James Ward, actually wrote a book based on that kind of premise. He, he, he got his old school um, pencil case and he was going through the things in it and, and started looking at the history of where everything came from. It's a very fascinating, fascinating read. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no, that sounds that sounds amazing. I mean, the one thing about my old pencil case that I found is that, you know, I found also this one time when this other kid, Jonathan, like used to bully me. And I remember he wrote something on the inside of my pencil case. And so finding that I was sort of, you know, it brought back a few bad memories. But I determined to battle on and just like continue on with the pencil case. If any of you see me at a conference, you can ask me if I have it. I'll try to remember to carry it with me. So for the next year, you're now going to have to carry a pencil case. Oh, can you imagine the hassle of getting that through uh, customs? Oh, the scissors and stapler and yeah. Oh, the security thing. Yeah, that would be that wouldn't be that good. Oh. Yeah, maybe I won't be carrying this around. Maybe I'm just going to live on a shelf with all the other things that I bring back from my parents. From maybe, my parents maybe, maybe just take a photo of it. Yes, exactly. Well, actually, maybe we should. Maybe I'll take a photo and we can put it on the I'll website. put it on the, on the, on the uh, blog, yeah. So, so, what, so our, what is your uh, favorite piece of stationery? What is my favorite piece of stationery? Um, well, does a pencil case, because I think my little leather pencil case is one of my favorite pieces, although in more traditional stationary sense, um, I'm very partial to like a good ballpoint pen. Um, I've had various ones. When I say good, I don't mean like super expensive Mont Blanc 
type pants. And I have something to say about those later. I don't mean those. I've never had one of those. I think I think it'd be crazy to spend a thousand dollars on a pen. Yeah, but I was for, ballpoint pens. I was um, for some reason I always assumed they were uh, invented by Biro, but they weren't, were they? Ah. Well, tell now, us about that in a bit, I guess. You've set me up. Oh no! I've got my notes on all the stuff you need to know about the history of the ballpoint pen. Being the course book writer nerd that I am, I ended up researching a longer story. In fact, it was because one of our listeners said about our first episode that it was nice, but we didn't have any longer stories. So I have the long piece ready, uh, ready to go on the pen. Also in this episode, Sean will be sending someone from ELT away to their dessert island. But first, let's hear from some teachers talk about their favorite bits of stationery. So what's your favorite piece of stationery and why? My favourite piece of stationery is an erasable pen because I think it's magic. Um, it's much nicer than writing with a pencil, but it doesn't matter how many mistakes you make because you can rub it all out afterwards. And they come in all kinds of different colours as well. More colours, the better. Um, my favourite piece of stationery would be a paper clips so that I can keep all my notes and my lesson plans together. My favourite piece of stationery is my hole puncher because it's bright green and it's a really big heavy piece of equipment and it goes funk. So my favourite piece of stationery was a pen and pencil in one where if you turn it one way it's a pen and if you turn it the other way it's a clickable pencil but unfortunately the other day I lent it to someone and then they never came back with it. Favourite piece of stationery? is my pen that I can use as a pointer when I'm giving a presentation but unfortunately the batteries run out of it so I'm gonna to have to use this little stress ball thing instead. Highlighters because I like having my notes in a colorful way and I like highlighting and underlining things it helps me remember better. My, I really don't have a favorite piece of stationery other than my pen because I don't really carry much. Uh, favorite piece of stationery is notebooks because I like the design of the covers and all the nice clean new papers to fill up. The Biro was Biro the original inventor of the ballpoint pen. Okay, this is this is kind of a whole bunch of like uh, sources that I've been checking. I'd like to say I checked exhaustively and fact-checked and, uh, you know, purchased several books on the history of the pen, but I didn't. I did go a little bit further than Wikipedia, though. So here's what I've got. Um, of course, we you know that before the ballpoint pen, people uh, used, um, like, these, like, fountain pens, right? Do you have any fountain pens, Sean? I'm used to have. You know, I, I very rarely with a pen these days. I just use my phone. All right. Well, I, I always hated fountain pens. Um, I, 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 I'm sure uh, anyone who's had cheap or nasty fountain pens has experienced the same problems. Ink everywhere, yeah? Exactly. Well, there were three main problems with fountain pens before the arrival of the ballpoint pen. One was that the ink that used to be filled with a watery ink called India ink. Um, and this kind of fed through the pen, I'm reading now, using capillary action. Google it, people, if you don't know what that is. I didn't. But anyway, that's how the that's how it went through uh, the pen. But the ink flew, flows unevenly 
on many of these pens. The ink is also slow to dry. So if you've ever like done stuff writing with a with a fountain pen, it's very easy to smudge the the, the paper, you know, just by hitting it with the edge of your hand, the ink smudges. Um, and uh, it so it doesn't dry quickly. Uh, when it but sometimes it accidentally dries in the pen and that gums the whole pen up which means the pen needed to be meticulously cleaned or you just had to kind of like throw away the top of the nib or the thing and kind of replace it again um i haven't had a fountain pen for ages but i remember some of those problems i certainly remember them from at school when i think that's the last time i used one covered in it i was, was horrible stuff so the first patent though for a uh, different kind of pen, a ballpoint pen, is in 1880 to a guy called John J. Loud. So one could argue that he was the inventor of the of the ballpoint pen. Um, in fact, the patent records would show. Uh, however, he his, his invention didn't really take off. He was more interested in a pen that would write on leather. And there wasn't a lot of call for other writing on leather in that style. So it isn't until... Um, the 19, uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, that all of a sudden, a newspaper editor from Hungary, frustrated by filling up fountain pens and cleaning smudged pages, created a new pen that combined a different kind of ink with a ball socket mechanism, all right? And that's Laszlo Biro in Hungary. So, yes, he was the inventor of the, like, the, 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 the more recognized one, but he didn't file the first patent. He filed his patent in 1938 uh, and was living in Germany at the time. But then during the war, they left Germany, him and his brother, and moved to Argentina, where they formed a company, Biro Pens of Argentina. So make the pen, uh, file a patent, and then, oh, got to get out of there. Uh, war is coming. They go to Argentina. Their pen is sold in Argentina under the name Bayrome or Birome, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but people, uh, according to a couple of sources, people in Argentina still call these kind of pens Byromes or Byromes. Maybe uh, we can get some feedback on that on the Facebook page or on our, on our blog. Anyway, the next chapter in the story of the, of the ballpoint pen is that it's, so it's getting widely used in Argentina and some, uh, some British um, people find out about it there. Um, and it gets the attention of the RAF, um, the Royal Air Force, which had been experimenting which, uh, with um, fountain pens in planes. But they were finding as the plane, uh, as uh, in, in RAF planes, uh, people, uh, whatever, writing, I suppose, writing on maps or things like that in fountain pens, the pen would explode or the ink would flow or it made such a huge mess. So they became the first ones to order large amounts of ballpoint pens to be used in RAF planes. What do you think? It, I, that kind of reminds me of the the story of um, the, the space pen, like NASA spent millions trying also, to do a pen. I also read that, that apparently that's a bit of a, an urban myth that NASA spent millions trying to make a, a, a space pen. Um, uh, although there was one, a, a pen company spent a lot of money trying to make a space pen, but they'd never been asked to do it by NASA. So I think they partly spread that thing. But again, this whole idea of like the kind of pen that you could write in high altitude or in 
zero gravity kind of thing. I yeah, but isn't that... the answer to that use a pencil? Exactly. Well, that's what I thought. I was like, if you're an RAF guy and you're 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 flying over Germany, um, it's World War II and everything, and the ink's going everywhere. I'd just be screaming, "Give me a pencil! Get rid of this! Just just use a pencil!" Of course, the pencils in space. Uh, they didn't. The uh, NASA uh, had pencils in space, but then they got worried that, like, if it kind of, if a little bit chipped off uh-huh. in the gravity, it would just fly around. It could fly into someone's eye. And there were also apparently um, fears that uh, little chips of pencil, bits of pencil, would create a fire in a spacecraft. So pencils were. Uh, they designed special kind of space pencils, which I couldn't find any pictures of, um, and then used uh, other ballpoint pens. So. My story is only halfway there for the people who wanted longer stories. Um, the uh, the story of the pen continues because um, these original pens sold to the military, to the RAF, were really expensive. Um, but uh, the public sold uh, pens were also quite expensive. And in the United States, another company started making them called Reynolds. Their pens cost $10 each. Uh, and they were uh, they were marketed as the first pen to write underwater, uh, upside down, etc. Um, and they were called like the new. They were so expensive because they were deemed new technology. Um, and the first person to make pens really cheap is this French guy called Marcel Biche in 1945. Um, and he kind of bought this factory to make these pens, which uh, he designed like the uh, the Bic pen. You know the the design of the big pen, the the the, the clear glass and yeah. the, the blue cap, which is actually in the Smithsonian Museum as a landmark in design. He was the guy who designed those pens, and he managed to um, he called the pens Bic after his name B I C H, but just B I C was the pen. Um, and they started then he started flooding the American market with these super super cheap pens. Uh, and the, his marketing line was right right. Writes well the first time, every time, I think. I'll need to check that again. So there you go. Uh, from the very early beginnings, from the fountain pen to John J. Loud to Laszlo Biro to Reynolds and the expensive pens in the States to finally the big pens. Uh, and, and that's my little potted history of the pen. Well, that, you obviously uh, did a little bit of research there, Lindsay. I'm exhausted. <laughs> what, what strikes me is kind of the same thing that I found when I was kind of looking at stationery, is uh, how many patent battles there are in, in stationery. You never realise that such little, I guess, things that we take for granted have uh, so many different people with patents for them. I mean, you've got the pens there. Um, and I would, you know, things from paper clips through to, you know, liquid paper, that kind of tipex. I don't know what, what you would yeah. call it. Huh. They've, they've all been the subject of patent battles. And it's, hey, uh, are any of these things like the accidental discoveries, you know, like this, the post it notes, which is apparently was like glue that didn't work. And then, and it could only like the, the, the guy who invented the, the post-it note was by accident. He was trying to make like a, a kind of a, a super glue that what, but, but it really wasn't super. It was really kind of just bad. Obviously quite bad for a super <laughs> yeah, glue. Okay. Then he realized like, Hey, I can stick this paper and take it off and stick it somewhere else and take it off. And then that was the invention. I don't know if that's just an urban myth or any of these patents that you found things that were supposed to be for something else. And then, um, well, the I don't know if it's by accident, but the woman that first used liquid paper, the, the, the correction in America, she got the idea from watching a painter 
um, she realized that what they used to clean their brushes and etc would be exactly what she needed for correcting uh, mistakes in typing because you couldn't obviously er um, erase it you had to go over right. the the actual typing so that i guess that's that kind of thing um, it's interesting also that all these stationary things actually get their names I i'm sure there's a a, a a lexical word for this but like the, the, the big pen is named after the person so you call it like you can call it a bic or you can call it a biro but that's kind of named after a person as well um scotch you know as a, as in scotch tape uh you know tipex is is like the company name isn't it that makes that makes the mm -hmm. liquid liquid white stuff these all seem to be given names after after the companies that make them now it's time to join sean as we go to tefl commutes dessert island welcome to the dessert island yes you heard that right dessert island a section lovingly named after all the students who have had trouble sorting out their puddings from their sand. Loosely based on an idea that the BBC had some years ago, we interview a person in ELT about things they would take with them if they suddenly had to go and teach on a remote island. And of course, we also find out what dessert they take with them to eat. In this episode, I talked to Sinead Laffin, a teacher trainer based in Prague. Sinead is also the coordinator of the IATEFL Teacher Development Special Interest Group. How are you doing, Sinead? Not too bad, Sean, and yourself? Yeah, good, thanks. How's Prague today? Um, it's grand, actually. I've just spent a little bit of the afternoon sitting down on the Plavka by the river. The sun's been shining, and uh, yeah, sort of, it's uh, coming into its own. I'm going to take you away from the river and the, the lovely sight of the, the castle and everything and mm -hmm. drop you in the middle of a desert island. Uh, despite the fact that it's a desert island, there are a group of students ready to be taught, um, and you're armed with three things which hopefully will better their English. Mm -hmm. um, so, Sinead, uh, your first thing is a methodology book. Um, so the first one um, is um, Sound Foundations, Adrian Underhill Sound Foundations. Um, just because I think it's got the... Obviously, it's, I mean, it's a wonderful book for teaching students, um, and I think teachers as well, to understand what's going on in their mouth and, you know, what's going on in terms of creating those sounds and sort of the physicality of phonology. But um, also for me, I just think it's got the potential for so much laughter. All of those discovery exercises, um, I just find myself giggling consistently and, and getting students to do them um, is something that we just, we have great fun with. So I can see that um, whiling away the hours on a desert island. So it's a, it's a book to amuse yourself and hopefully teach the students something. And then the other one that's on my short list is, uh, oh, Scott Thornbury's um, How to Teach Speaking, which is one of those books that I just feel like I can dip into at any point and go, oh, wow, I haven't done that in ages or I haven't done that. And there's so many different kinds of speaking activities and sort of different structures in there um that i feel like that's one that i i could make great use of on a desert island push comes to shove for comedy value i think we're going to have to go with adrian underhill so that's the methodology book chosen uh, what about a resource book super okay so um well i i when i started listing things for myself a teaching unplugged came up pretty quickly um scott thornbury and luke meddings teaching unplugged because again it's one of those books that i just like 
consistently come back to. Um, it's a great, you know, Monday morning, what am I going to do? Open it randomly. That'll do fantastic. And not just for what's on the page, but for what it kind of sparks, the kind of, what the way, the directions it sends you um, and the potential other other activities that come out of that book, you know? Um, and yeah, so that's that's definitely one that's on the list. Um, you're allowed to take one other thing to help you with your teaching. So what would that be? That other thing I'm going to, I, yeah, a lot, a lot of thinking on this one. And I'm going to take uh, a mini whiteboard and a whiteboard marker if I'm allowed to have those two things as one. Um, it's going to be a whiteboard because I just love the potential for drawing. And I'm a whiteboard junkie. I've never been into um, interactive whiteboards. I like my tech, but it's the one place I keep coming back to is the layout of a whiteboard and the ability to draw and for students to interact with it. So um, as great and all as the sand is going to be. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you've got the sand. You could draw your pictures in the sand. Yeah, I don't know. Give me, give me a whiteboard and a pen. You know, there's a certain finesse you can get on a whiteboard that you're just not going to get in the sand. I <laughs> well, since you said mini whiteboard, but we'll we'll let you take that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One more thing. As you know, we call this segment Desert Island Disc. Um, you've taught Czech students like me, and they always confuse mm-hmm. desert and desert. So, being this is a desert island, what dessert would you want to have while there? Super. Uh, well, time of year that's in it, um, I found myself for the first time in years eating rhubarb. And it's taken me back to this really nostalgic place in my childhood and my father's vegetable patch. And so I'm going to uh, take with me uh, a lifetime supply of rhubarb crumble. So with that <laughs> pleasant thought uh, to, to end on, uh, Sinead, off you go. go. Go teach your lesson with your mini whiteboard, your your sound foundations and your teaching unplugged and don't give away all your crumble as rewards for good work to students. <laughs> I definitely will not, John. Thanks, Sinead. <laughs> Thanks, Mill. Bye. Do you remember uh, with paperclips, do you remember on Microsoft the name of the thing that popped up that you need to help? Oh, oh yeah, that annoying little paper. Wasn't it? Was it replaced by a dog? I, I don't know. I, I but you know what it was called? Clippy. Clippy. Very good. Well, you know, Clippy was got rid of in two thousand and seven. However, he's back this year, and he's starring in his own pornographic novels. No way. Yeah, there's a Clippy. there's a new novel called Conquered by Clippy. But but it's not the same Clippy. Well, it is. Um, I'll give you the the link. I, mean, I don't think there's a link we might want to share with our students, but I'll give you a link to the article about it on, on the website. Uh, Conquered by Clippy, the porn novel about a Microsoft icon imitating <laughs> a piece of stationery. And, and the cover of the book is the clip with a scantily glad, clad woman. But I think oh. there is a crossover between stationery. Get us the author <laughs> of that book on our podcast. We want to know... <laughs> His or her favorite piece of station. But it's amazing. I mean, not that it's kind of, I guess it's uh, clear your Google search. But um, looking up station, you also find on BuzzFeed things like borderline erotic for photos for people who love stationery. And the little teasing shots of stationery. But you can, like, you know, yeah, tell me that opening a moleskin notepad you know with that little clip that there isn't something that 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 little bit of elastic when you open a moleskin note, notepad or oh, okay. something that's really nice 
Uh, what are those really nice pa uh, uh, paper craft? What are they called? Those the notepads. Like I know what you mean with the moleskin. I've got a moleskin, even though I don't use paper that much because because I tend to write on my on my tablets. I've still got a lovely moleskin, a Star Wars moleskin, which um, tell me that opening one of those is lovely. Sensual act itself. So I can completely understand stationary porn, and might be nice if anybody uh, in our. Um, of our listeners wants to send us some photos of stationary oh, <laughs> where's um, he going with it <laughs> <laughs> well no but seriously like a nice photo of a pen not with human <laughs> bits in there just just like just uh nice photos of pens and 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 paper clips and things like that i guess um you agree uh, you know the the ex-lead singer of the smiths morrissey he's one of his quotes from, uh, from that time in the 80s when he was in the smiths he says for me going into ryman's which is a well-known uk station shop is the most ex extreme sexual experience one could have really you know who has amazing who does great sta stationary shops is germany if you are ever in germany and get to go to a stationary shop it's 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 amazing. It's awesome. They have all this stuff that just they just do it really nicely and tons of different kinds of paper and everything. I never end up buying that much in there because I can never really decide. And also, um, I have too many notepads already that are just unopened and I just kind of have them there. I feel sort of weird about writing in some of these notepads. I don't know why. They just seem too nice to you want to you can't just write a grocery list in some of these notepads. It's you need to, I don't know, be jotting down ideas for your next great novel or something anyway kids <laughs> there you go okay so that's our episode done thank you for listening to Tefl commute and i'll see you next time thanks everyone see you next time as your commute is coming to an end here's an idea you can take into class right now this episode we've been talking about stationery, so grab a paperclip on your way into the classroom. Hold up the paperclip and tell the students that one way often used to test creativity and divergent thinking is by asking people to come up with different ways to use a paperclip, for example, bending it to make a hook. Put the students into small groups and ask them to come up with as many ways as they can think of. Set a time limit. If your students need more motivation, then tell them that most people come up with an average of 15 ideas, while someone who can get 200 or more is most likely to be a genius. After allowing time for the groups to come up with ideas, let each group share and perhaps they can compare to the numerous lists of ideas found online. Check out our website for links. You've been listening to The TEFL Commute, an original podcast by Lindsay Clanfield, Sean Wilden and James Taylor. Visit us at www.tefflecommute.com.